All right, well, last week, guys, we started a new sermon series entitled Simply Seven, Everything You Need to Know in Seven Words. Uh, if you weren't here for that message, or maybe you were uh, next door or downstairs serving in some capacity, I encourage you to go online, uh, check it out on the podcast. We'd love for you to be caught up. But just so we're all on the same page this morning, let me try to summarize uh, what the series is all about. Uh, a lot of things in life uh, end up being way too complicated. Amen? Isn't it just amazing how things can just turn out to be so complex and so confusing? From toothpaste options to investment opportunities to healthcare plans, it's so easy for uh, uh, normal guys like myself uh, to be overwhelmed and to feel uh, way over my head when it comes to those things. That's why I love the acronym KISS. Have you heard of that acronym before? Keep it simple, stupid. Right, we all know that is true and very helpful in different situations. That acronym actually began in the military uh, many years ago, but it applies to most things in life, does it not? And it really applies to our faith. Because whether you realize it or not, it's so easy to confuse people with the message of Christ. Why? What are you saying? Right, throwing a little science talk, a little Holy Spirit talk, a little evolution talk, a little end times talk, what you read online or heard in college, and suddenly... What was intended, this message that was intended to draw people into God, suddenly that message is, is driving people away from God. It's just way too complex, just way too complicated. And that's what we're trying to remedy in this series. Because like Jesus, we want to try to be able to summarize and say everything there is to say about our faith and our God and our love for others. We want to be able to say it in a handful of words. We want to be able to say it in a simple and straightforward way. And since in ancient Hebrew culture, the number seven was more than just a number, it was actually symbolic of completion and wholeness, we've chosen seven words that I personally think say everything there is to say about this story, about your story, and about everybody else's story for that matter. I'm excited to share with you uh, the second word in the series this morning. How many of you, and probably don't want to do an actual show of hands, but just hypothetically, how many of you have ever unknowingly had really bad breath? Anybody know that feeling? Uh, you're just going about your day, right, chumming it up with everybody, your afternoon meetings, and then suddenly a friend or a colleague or most likely your spouse uh, comes up to you and pulls one of the, whoa, what is wrong with you? Did you eat a skunk for lunch, a dead skunk? Man, you need a few of these. Pieces of gum, mints, mentos, whatever it might be. A pastor friend of mine tells the story of that happening to him after church on a particular Sunday. Uh, he met up with his wife after the dust had settled and everybody had gone back home. And, and she, as kindly as she knew how, told him that his breath was borderline criminal. Well, he was embarrassed by that and, and apologized to her. But then he really started thinking about it. And he thought, if it's that way right now, it's probably been this way all morning which meant that all the folks that he had talked to after church walked away not because they were so grateful, but because they were so grossed out. And so church, if that is true for me, would you please tell me or just hand me a piece of gum? I don't want you walking away uh, with that in mind. And this morning, I'm actually going to try to be that person. I'm going to try to be that good friend or that colleague, maybe that, that spouse. I'm going to be that person that comes up to you and points out something that that's kind of awkward and embarrassing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out that something in our life is a little off, that something in our life stinks, something in our life reeks, in fact, and I wish it were just our breath. Let me explain. Uh, last week, our series started with the word creator. 
this incredibly important truth that God is the reason for. He is the cause of. He's the one who formed and fashioned everything in the universe. The world is not here because of some giant cosmic bang or accident. It's not here because over the course of millions of years, a pond scum developed into minds like Albert Einstein. It's not here for any of those other reasons. Everything exists because God created it. Everything exists because God handmade it. That's true for the entire universe. That's also true for every single one of you. And after God put his finishing touches on the beautiful thing that he had made, the scripture reads as if he literally put his hands behind his back and he kicked his feet up and he just said, oh, oh, that's good. That is so good. Seven times, in fact, there's that number again. Seven times God said it was so good, which means in the creator's mind, in the great God of the universe, in his eyes, this wasn't just good enough. This wasn't good for now. This was as good as it gets. It was so good. Those of you who are artists or musicians, you understand this feeling, right? You can be working on a painting or, or a piece of music or a poem and although it might look or sound great to everybody else, you as the creator of that thing, you know it's just a little bit off. It just needs a little bit more. And so you play with it and, and you tinker with it for a few more hours, maybe even days, maybe even months. But there eventually comes a point where you, as the maker of this beautiful thing, where you, you put the final touches, the finishing touches on whatever it is that you have made, and you just stand back and you're like, oh, oh, that's good. That's how I want it to be. Many of you don't know this, but I, I, in fact, love to paint, true story. And so I painted this little guy over the last couple of days. Uh, I know, I know, it's a major surprise to you, but I'm not just a pretty face up here, people. <laughs> but here's how it happened, right? Even after Becca told me, and eh, it looks great. I was like, no, it's just, it's just not done yet. So even after I was done several days ago, I would spend the next couple of days, you know, I'd be there with my toothbrush, like, man, I just don't know. Well, maybe I could add something over here. I'd be eating my cereal in the morning, looking at the thing with paintbrush in the other hand. Man, how could I make this just a little bit better? But there came that moment. It's true with the dance. I'm sure it's true with, with a song that you write. There came that moment where it just fit, where it came together. You're like, yes, yeah, that's, that's it. I'm done with that. That's so good. That's how it was for God at the end of Genesis 1, end of Genesis 2. That's how it was with the canvas of creation. It was done. It was complete. It was so beautiful. It was so good. It was just the way the maker wanted it to be. And I want you to try to imagine that world for just a few minutes with me, church. Imagine a world without pain, without shame, without crime or guilt or, or hatred. Um, a world without disease, disaster, even a world without death itself. Imagine a world, as Genesis 2 describes to us, where Adam and Eve are fully naked, and they are fully exposed to each other, to God, and yet there's no shame, there's no embarrassment, there's no awkwardness. Can you even imagine that world? And the answer is no. No, we can't even imagine what that world be, would be like because our world has never been like that. The world that we have known, it has never existed in that, in that way. And Genesis 3 tells us why that is. Genesis 3 is an account of the catastrophe that happened to God's great canvas. Genesis 3 brings up the second word in our series, the word curse. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you have a Bible, open there. If not, we'll put it up on the screen for you. It says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Here in just six short verses, we learn how and why pain has become a huge part of our problem. Let me walk back through this text with you verse by verse. Now the serpent, who was more crafty than all their animals, said to the woman. A kindergartner was sitting in class one morning and the teacher was reading the three little pigs. She came to the part where the first little pig was buying some hay. Pardon me, sir, the pig said to the farmer. May I purchase some hay for my house? The teacher then turned to the class and said, and do you know what the farmer said next? A little boy raised his hand and said, I know. Holy smokes, that pig can talk. Well, I imagine that's how Eve must have felt uh, when she saw this talking serpent. It probably looked and sounded just as crazy, and it was just as confusing to her as it is to us. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? What's going on here? But there was a lot of symbolism, a lot of meaning in that moment, and especially to the original audience who would have first heard this story. You see, in the ancient world, the serpent is a very important character, a very important symbol, in fact. The serpent represents pagan wisdom and power. It's sometimes used to depict magic or, or mysticism. And so the author here in Genesis is probably playing off of that understanding. It's probably God's good world, and suddenly this, this mystic kind of pagan presence is walking into the story, is part of the story. What's going to happen? The plot is thickening. The text tells us the serpent is more crafty than all the other animals. I do not believe that is a compliment. It sounds like he is a trickster, a cheat, that he in this moment is up to no good. And we know that to be true because we have the New Testament, which tells us this isn't just some sly serpent. Who is this character? Well, this is Satan, right? This is the embodiment of evil. This is the one who opposes and stands against God himself. And so this serpent slithers up to the woman and asks a seemingly simple question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. To fully appreciate the question, you have to hear the sarcasm and the cynicism buried deep within it. It's if someone is asking you, are you really going to stay a virgin until you get married? Are you really going to come forth with the truth even though you don't have to and it won't serve you any benefits? Did you really think Brock Osweiler was going to make it anywhere else? I mean, serious, you fools, right? This question, oh, it tells us a lot about the serpent's attitude. It tells us a lot about his agenda. Whenever you question someone in this way, there's disdain, right? There's disrespect. This question is not about clarification. This is all about accusation. Satan isn't looking to learn the truth about God's word. He doesn't care what God really said. He's looking to distort the truth of God's word and to get Eve to question what God said. Well, what did God say? Genesis 2.16 tells us, And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, 
But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Did you see the differences there? You see, the serpent comes and says, did God say you can't eat from any tree? I mean, this is just not a very loving God, if you ask me. Create all these beautiful trees, place you in the middle of them, and then say, hands off, no touch. Oh, he's not a good God at all. But Genesis 2 says, no, 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 God didn't say that. God didn't say anything even close to that. God said they could eat from every tree, from any tree in the garden. There was ample provision made for this young couple. But there was one tree, one tree alone that was off limits. There was one single prohibition. But it is not exhaustive like the serpent wants you to believe. It's not all-encompassing like the serpent wants to make you think. Now, we're not sure why this particular tree was off limits. Some say there was something bad about the tree itself. I don't agree with that. Some say the tree was there just to simply test the couple. And I only partially agree with that. See, I believe, like everything else in this creation, on this beautiful canvas, these things were good. This tree was good. Knowledge, discernment, wisdom. Those are good, godly things. But it all boiled down to trust and timing. Would the young couple believe and heed their creator's warnings? Would they wait for him to grant them access, to give them access when he felt the time was right? Or would they take matters into their own hands? Would they push the issue? Would they want something now and do whatever it took to get it? Would Adam and Eve trust their maker? Would they trust the one who built them, formed them, fashioned them inside and out? Would they trust the one who did that knows best and knows them best? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And it's the question that they had to answer, and it's a question that everybody since them has had to answer. And it's not hard to see how the serpent wants you to answer the question. He wants you to think that God is holding you back, that God, that God is holding something from you. And so he asked this question, and the phraseology I mean, is just so powerful. Did God really say? I mean, just, just listen to that. Did God really say it's better to give than receive? Because how far are you going to go with that, Christian? You deserve certain things. You need certain things. Did he really say that? Did God really say you can't ever have sex? I mean, ever really? That seems a little prude. Did God really say you're supposed to forgive those who abused you, those who have attacked you? Really? Does he know how much damage they did to you? Did God really say that? Satan has this way, does he not, of taking the truth of God's word, taking the things that God has made for us, and he twists it. It goes from this, all the trees in the garden except for that one, really, to all the trees in the garden except for that one, really? You see how that is twisted? You see how it's been distorted? Well, how does the woman respond? Verse 2, we may eat fruit. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it or you will die. This verse teaches us a profound and powerful truth. Men pay attention. Women tend to exaggerate. Listen, I'm not saying the Bible is saying. All right, guys, you have justification now. All right? God never said you're not supposed to touch it. Just like we don't always watch football or never pick up our stuff. Right, guys? Amen? Yeah, thank you, Eve, come on. But her answer, her answer is good. It's solid. And the serpent knows that. And so now he's done with the small talk. And so he moves in for the kill. You will not certainly die, Eve. You will more or less be enlightened. 
First, the serpent simply questioned God's words, but now he's just flat out questioning God's heart, God's goodness, God's character. You won't die, Eve. In other words, there aren't any negative consequences to disobeying God. God didn't really mean what he said. And this canvas, it's no longer about him. It's about you. This world now revolves around you. And once that little seed was planted, the serpent just slithers away and lets sin do its thing. It grows, germinates, and we see it, right? The woman gives in to the temptation. She eats the fruit. She convinces her husband to give in, which was way too easy, by the way. And when God confronts them about it later in the story, they are incapable. They are unwilling to take any personal responsibility for it. Adam, Adam, what happened here? Well, the, the woman, the, the woman you gave me, God, Eve, what, what happened here? Well, the serpent, the serpent that was in the garden, something went wrong, something went awry, something broke. Everyone knew it, everyone could feel it, but everyone else was to blame for it. Everyone else was at fault. It reminds me of the, the lame excuses that some police officers get when they pull people over for speeding. I came across a list. These are some of my favorite. Uh, oh, I thought the sign I-95 meant that was the speed limit. Not exactly. Uh, I wasn't speeding. I just got a haircut. It makes me look fast. That's how I do this, just so you know. I was just trying to get to McDonald's before breakfast ended. Yeah, not so sure about that one. But what happened in the garden wasn't something that Adam and Eve could talk their way out of. It wasn't something they could get out of, no matter how hard they tried. And what's crazy to me is that I think our culture might actually praise Eve for what she did here in this moment. She's being her own person. She's making her own decisions. She's freeing herself from the shackles and limitations of this dictating, domineering God. She's independent. She's seeking personal enlightenment, almost as if Eve was Truman in the Truman Show. Like, break free from that world, Eve. You go, girl. But what she did here, what both of them did here, had horrific consequences. Consequences that contaminated everything. Consequences that we can summarize and state in a single word. Curse. Curse. See, their relationship with creation was cursed this beautiful, harmonious relationship where the earth was going to produce all this wonderful fruit and all this wonderful food for them, now this creation was going to fight against them. It was going to be so hard to work it. This relationship they had with each other, that was meant to be so close, so intimate, so beautiful. Oh, now it was going to have tension and awkwardness and fighting. And this relationship they were designed to have with their creator, it was just going to be hard. They were going to be banished from the garden. They were going to be banished from this deep personal relationship with the Lord. You see, the consequences of selfishness, the consequences of short-sightedness, the consequences of siding with the serpent are always so ugly, always so destructive, always so nasty and it wrecks everything all oh, the serpent's promise was that Adam and Eve's eyes would be opened they were opened alright they were opened to the truth that God is real and God is right and when you don't believe that bad things happen 
when you don't live by his design or listen to his voice or submit to his authority, your relationship, your world, your life will turn into this. You will know the difference between good and evil, the serpent said. Oh, they definitely knew the difference. They knew they had it good, but what they had done was evil. You with me, church? The goodness is gone. And I wish that we could speak about this in some hypothetical terms. Like all those fools back in the garden. Oh, how bad they had it. All those negative consequences that they had to experience. This is exactly what our world is like right now, isn't it? Just covered up. Just so cursed. I mean, why is there so many natural disasters? Why do you think your marriage is falling apart? Why do you think life is filled with so many vices or addictions or problems? Why do you feel as if you're always fighting an uphill battle? Why do you think bugs bite or terrorists attack? Why is it so hard to pray? Why is it so hard to focus when you read your Bible? Why? Because it's cursed. The earth is cursed. Oh, it was so good to begin with. The maker made it just the way he wanted it to be, but we came in and we contaminated it. When we sided with the serpent, we brought in this ugliness that ruined it, that wrecked it. Yes, we can pin it back on Adam and Eve and say, oh, those fools back in the garden, it started with them. Shame on them. Because we make the same decisions today. We do the same thing now. Romans 5.12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. That's the beginning point. Yes, we get that. Adam's sin brought about death. But listen to this, death spread to everybody because everybody sinned. Isaiah 53, 6 states it pretty clearly. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all done our own thing just like Eve has. We've all cursed creation in a certain way. Sure, Adam and Eve were the first ones to go down that path, but we continue to walk down that same path every single day. So I hate to say it, friends, but I've got to say it. Your breath, it reeks. More than that, your heart, your mind, your spirit, it reeks. And it's because it's prone to sin and sin reeks. Sin takes something that was so good and it just messes it up. Each of us is so drawn to doing what Eve did in the garden. We give in to the serpent. We follow the serpent into sin. And we fool ourselves when we call sin just some arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. Back in the day it was uh, don't smoke or, or drink or chew and definitely don't date any girls who do, Right? That was the list of sins. We have our own list nowadays. Sin is so much bigger. Don't fool yourself. Sin is, is, is this lie that lives deep in me that I know better than God. Sin is this deep-seated tendency I have to deny the truth, to twist the truth, especially for my own personal gain. Sin is this thing in me that makes me question everything God does and justify everything that I do. Sin is this dynamic that causes me to use and abuse what God said, what God made, and then I discard it when I'm tired of it and when I'm done with it. I love how one pastor put it, sin is about substitution. I substitute God's words for somebody else's words. I substitute God's timing for my own timing. I substitute this beautiful life that God created for me to enjoy for the one that I think I can manufacture on my own. And we can ridicule Adam and Eve for doing it, but we do it too. It's true for everybody. Sin lies deep in our heart from the prostitute to the pastor. It's in all of us. In fact, we do it more often than we'd ever like to admit to and in ways we aren't even aware of. And every time we do it, we add to this. We cover up and we curse and we contaminate the beautiful thing that God made. And this is how a lot of people's lives look right now, isn't it? Maybe this is how your life looks right now. 
There are hints, there are glimmers of it being so good. Like, I, I know that snow-capped mountain and that laugh of that baby and that gentle kiss that I experienced, oh, those were so good. Like, I know something good is back there, but everything else seems so hard. Everything else seems so wrecked, so ruined. This explains it. This is why the world is the way that it is. It saddens me, but it doesn't surprise me. When God becomes a smaller part of the equation, and when you remove his word and his voice from your equation, this is what's going to happen. I'm not talking about prayer in schools right now. I'm talking about God in your life right now. You remove him, and this is going to happen. It might happen overnight. Some of us know that feeling. It might happen over the course of our lives. But this is going to happen. But here's the thing, church. I made this little guy. And I'm so sorry that I did that to you. Oh. I made this thing, spent hours on this thing throughout the week knowing it was going to be destroyed. I knew, I knew this was going to happen to it. Yet I did it anyway. That's exactly how God feels about the world. He made this such a this beautiful thing, six days in fact, where he just poured himself into this beautiful thing. It was so good, but he knew, he knew it was going to be wrecked and ruined, contaminated and cursed. He knew it, but he made it anyway. And so I want you to walk out of here today with this hope. Why would he do that? Why would he make it knowing full well we were going to come in and wreck it? As the maker, as the creator, he must know then how to fix it. He must know there's a way to repair it. He must know there's, there's a way to remake this or else he wouldn't do it. So let me pray for us and we'll get you out of here. God, you are such a good God in your beautiful world. Even though we've only seen but a, but a glimpse of the beautiful creation you originally made, God, we thank you for it. But now we come before you and we just apologize. We're like, man, we're so sorry for messing it up. Oh, sure, Adam and Eve started something, God, but we follow in their footsteps so easily. Each of us is approached by the serpent multiple times a day in different ways, Lord, in the quiet of our heart, at work, uh, with our family. He comes and he says, did God really say, do you really care about him? Is it really true? And then, oh, we just believe him. We just doubt you, and we're so sorry for that, God. And that explains why things are hard, why things are ugly, why things are messed up in our lives and in our world, because sin has come and covered it up and cursed it. And so, God, we look to you as the maker, the one who originally designed it. Would you fix it for us? Would you help us? Would you send somebody to us, God, who can pretty this thing up and make it like it was? Please, Father, please. We need your help on that. We messed it up, and we cannot fix it on our own, and so we cry to you, please, please bring back the beautiful, good creation, the canvas that once was. Make it so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, thank you guys so much for being here. Have an amazing afternoon. God bless. Be strong and courageous.